So I'm here with Mark Fell, who is a composer of electronic music uh, that sort of focuses on algorithmic processes and uh, all sorts of different stuff. And uh, I've been following his career for many years and is a joy to talk to him. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks. Okay, so uh, I, nice wanted to, to <laughs> uh, I wanted to start by uh, sort of uh, I guess approaching you with the the usual question I ask, which is about coffee. But I know that you don't drink coffee, so um, can you tell me a little bit about your tea drinking habits? Yeah, I I did actually used to enjoy coffee, but then I I was in Hong Kong probably about twenty years ago, and what happened was that every time I had a coffee, I started to get really bad stomach cramps, hmm. and it like last. And so when I got back from Hong Kong, I went to the doctors, and he said. Uh, it'll kind of clear itself up sort of and it did um and then uh but i kind of just never got back into drinking coffee but um i might start again actually but anyway so yeah i'm a tea drinker i'm like i'm obsessively into tea basically um and my favorite kinds of tea there's a i don't know if you know this guy aoki takamasa who's a techno producer from Osaka so uh, he has some kind of family connection and they, they make this amazing green tea it's, it's called Gyokuro which is oh, uh, yeah. really really nice quality so basically I buy four bags of that off Aoki every year and nice. uh, the problem with it is that is it, it's a kind of miracle drug for when you're working because it's just like um it kind of connects your brain up basically so you can do uh if you're doing things that are like very difficult like i'm thinking really stuck on a max patch or something like oh my god i don't understand what the issue is here have a few cups of that and it's like the the answer sort of miraculously presents itself interesting to uh, the end of your fingers it doesn't even go through your head it just appears on screen <laughs> nice it just it um, initiates that flow state do you brew it yeah. like a qc or one of those like a uh, little fancy teapots that have the handle on the side well i i have a i have a, a, a just a regular glass teapot I, it's not a kind it's kind of like an old thing um and then i kind of do it in the proper method um yeah, like, but I make it quite strong. It's nice when it's strong, basically. But a lot of people are quite shocked. You know, here in Britain, if you t talk about green tea, t people typically think some kind of lifestyle tea bag that you might get from a middle-class supermarket mm -hmm. that is actually not, nothing like what green tea actually is. And then when you have the real thing, it's like, oh, that's actually, it can be quite challenging, I think, for some people, because the flavor is quite intense, you know. Yeah, very not like, bitter, but that kind of deep sort of, um, yeah, richness. Like chlorophyll you heavy. Oh, um, sorry. Like very chlorophyll heavy. I guess so. Yeah, and then I also really like uh, my favorite black tea is from the Yunnan province in China. Um, I can't remember what it's called actually. I can't remember the Chinese name for it. Um, and it's kind of like quite long dark sort of stringy bits <laughs> but that's a really nice black tea and then ever, go on sorry it's, um, have you had the dragon wall green tea uh, it's like a sort of like lightly roasted green tea i i think i probably have but it's not something that i'm that familiar with just so expensive um, but uh such an interesting 
sort of a uh, complex but like very light and sort of viscous uh texture it's really crazy mm -hmm. and then also my other favorite tea right now is round the corner from where i live i mean i, I don't leave the house at all because of lot i'm caring for my elderly parents so I, i'm super strict i've not been into a shop for about the year now uh, but around the corner is a great supermarket that does this arabic black tea called al caboose i don't know if that's that's the manufacturer i think but that's a great tea and uh but again i, I drink way too much tea it's a bit stupid but whatever well thanks for that window into uh your <laughs> personal life uh, it's a good way for me to round up my sort of model of you um mm. so uh you mentioned being on lockdown and i'm curious uh has this affected your productivity one way or another has it sort of remained the same uh, how have you adjusted in terms of your practice? Like, I think I tend to work while I'm traveling. So like usually what happens is that I'll, I'll have a kind of quite a intense travel schedule. And it's like I arrive somewhere and I got a week to make a new piece of work that's going to be presented. You know, there'll be a, a premiere like five days after I arrive scheduled and it's like oh my god so i tend to work a lot because i'm traveling and doing all these new pieces to very short deadlines and i used to really like that way of working actually because it, it just kept me you know it just kept me going i guess like just this constant challenge of like how do i respond to this situation so like the whole lockdown thing has been very different you know i've, I've, I've not traveled for over a year which is I mean, previously, it's like, I think two weeks was the longest period that I was at home, you know, for a long time. <clears throat> so um, it's, a, it's a strange situation. And I mean, I've been really busy, like doing a lot of work. And also with Ryan, my son, Ryan Trainer, we developed this kind of online system that we've been using quite a lot. So it's been kind of like a nice sort of situation that you know we're both in the house working and he's got his projects i've got mine and we can kind of exchange ideas and help each other out and work together on things so that's been a really unusual situation uh and kind of nice i guess although stressful sometimes yeah, <laughs> you know there have been a few family rows uh happened in the in the last year Several rows, lots of rows, actually. <laughs> uh, do you mind elaborating on this online system? Yeah, so basically we, when lockdown happened, you know, when everything started getting cancelled, we got lots and lots of offers to do like streaming kinds of shows. And I, I do really don't like that whole sort of way of presenting work, you know, like it's just a bit, it doesn't feel particularly stimulating to me you know um so it was like how do we what what could be the alternative and also like how can what can we do for audiences that that could be slightly different so we start to think hang on a minute we use max to do these algorithmic processes in theory it could be quite easy to connect those to like send our initial idea was you basically let people download the max patch and it connects to us in real time and we control it from where we are. So essentially we're performing on their computer in their front rooms or whatever. Uh, and that way you cut out the venue, 
you cut out everything. You just, you know, there's just you and the audience. But the problem is without the venue involved, there's no one to pay you. So it's kind of like, and we kind of need, you know, we need money to live and pay bills and stuff. Um, so, so that's kind of where it came from. So it ended up that venues were interested in using this. And we, we did this a few times um, where, where the venue, there'd be a sound engineer at the venue with a Max patch and we'd be kind of sharing data with it. Essentially, it's like the interface on my computer is mirrored on that computer. So when I turn a dial, it turns there as well. And it just became a nice way of working. And then we start to do more workshop type things with it. Um, but really that's more kind of Ryan's sort of area, the workshop stuff. Um, Cause he kind of enjoys that. I mean, I enjoy that kind of work. It's just that he's been doing more of it. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's been a nice project actually. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of unusual that not much else like that exists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of these online collaborative music making platforms tend to be like how to share sound files or how to, you know, like almost copying a kind of audio edit workstation paradigm online, which they're great tools, you know, they're, they're brilliant things. I'm not criticizing them, but what I think what was special about our case was because we thought we were already working with these algorithmic procedures, you know, to generate patterns the amount of data that you have to put into them to get them to do what you want to do is, is minuscule. So it's kind of like our way of working was already kind of set up for that network aspect to be involved sort of. So, um, yeah, we, we did it and it, and we're still doing, you know, we're still working on that now, you know, it's like an ongoing project of how to develop it and what to do next. So for the, the audience who's on, you know, there and receiving uh, the Max Patch and stuff, uh, have you taken like their, I guess their speakers and like their audio quality into consideration? Like, is that something that you have just sort of like, you know, accepted that will maybe be yeah, well, earbuds? Right now, what we've done, we've we've done that in workshop context, but we've not done a performance where we've, we've given the Max Patch to people. Um, so what we've done is in Berlin, for example, we the audience was still allowed in. So we were like performing to a, a real room in Berlin. Uh, and we did a, where was the other one? Anyway, we've done a few things like that. So we've not actually given the max patch to people, uh, but but yeah, we do consider um, what what is it that, you know, if it's, if it's an event where people are listening at home, you don't know what they're gonna be. Mm -hmm. Uh, listening to it online. I did a thing, the festival No Bounds in Sheffield. Uh, there was a there was a thing there last October where it was a kind of multi-channel thing. So the, the, there was an empty space with a few you know few people were allowed in. An eight speaker system, or it might have been a sixteen speaker system, and then an ambisonic a binaural head in the middle. So like the the multi-channel sound was played into the space, and the binaural head then converted it to a stereo stream and that's what the audience heard and I was like I don't really like the idea of that so I did this thing where I made a frame I don't know if you saw it but it was like a kind of pyramid sort of frame with two directional mics placed on it so that a performer moved this frame around the space according to instructions from the audience given over uh 
YouTube. Hmm. So this frame was moved around the space because the directional mics were emphasized the, the, the direction of the, a specific area of sound. As this frame was moved, it kind of picked up different harmonics and, and uh, frequencies and stuff. So my idea for that was basically that the audience at home are getting a better experience than the people in the space, if you see what I mean. So but again, the, go on. With a binaural head, you essentially mean that you're taking all the, the other things that are distributed and you're just reducing it to two channels so that everybody has that same. Uh, yeah, I mean, that wasn't the technology I used, but the binaural head is basically a dummy head with two microphones where the ears are. Gotcha. And it's a way of kind of... Uh, giving a spatial represent a, a kind of convincing spatial representation of sound using two channels that um, makes me think of like a like one of those things of a, a 4d or like a high dimensional sort of object that you perceive in 2d when you project it you know what i'm talking about like when you yeah, yeah. light through some structure and you can see the the 2d version of it yeah i mean i guess um the thing is, also with spatial sound, all sound is spatial. You know, all sound is sound in space. Even if you you have like a, a monophonic speaker, it's a spatial sound. So all sound is spatial. But then we, all of us only have two ears. Right. So you know, we we are able to kind of use our two ears to quite effectively work out where sound is coming from in our environment. So. Um, it would be really nice. I've always, when people say to me, like we're working with 3D sound, I'm always like, I'd much rather work with 1D sound. Can you do that? You know, but of course it's impossible. It's impossible to create a one dimensional sound because sound radiates out in all, all dimensions. So the, the idea of 3D sound is a bit misleading because all sound is three dimensional in terms of spatial relationships. So um, yeah, coming back to your point about looking like perceiving higher dimensional objects as they pass through a three-dimensional environment. It kind of, maybe it's a bit like that, but mm -hmm. probably it's something a lot more boring than that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, um, so you sort of were talking about collaboration uh, with, you know, Ryan and uh, these tax patches and stuff. And I'm curious, uh, you know, you've done tons of collaborations over the years with all sorts of people. And um, has your sort of like, approach or like the heuristics that you use for fruitful collaborations changed over the years? And do you have any heuristics that you could sort of lay on me? Yeah, I mean, my approach to collaboration, I think, um, is don't be a control freak, you know? Like, I think when I was younger, <clears throat> it was a lot more like I had, I had a vested interest in doing my thing, you know, it's like, I'd not, Put many records out or before i'd put records out you know so there's a kind of like sense of urgency of like ah oh, this is what i want to say ah and it's it's kind of nice to do the opposite of that i think and just kind of like just be a bit more sort of like let things happen and see see where they go sort of but um collaborations are a great way to learn i think as well you know it's it's a great way to learn about, not just about music, but about how the ways that music can be made, you know, uh, and the different, 
yeah and just it's kind of like amazing the strategies that people have for making music you know the way people different people approach making music is like quite remarkable um and some people are quite difficult to work with actually that's that's one thing i that's kind of uh yeah, sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, that was actually quite a brutal experience. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I guess uh, in terms of how to approach collaboration, it's, it's really hard to say. Um, I think... I think just not dominating. I think just being the opposite of dominant is, is a good thing. And... Uh, and not worrying if your voice is actually in there. You know, it's like, um, yeah. Does that make sense? That's not a very good answer, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, do, would you say that most of the time when you meet with somebody uh, for a collaboration, does the sort of like inner workings of who does what and like the roles do that, does that sort of like self-organize or sort of figure itself out uh, just intuitively? Or do you ever spell it out? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's not like we ever sit down and, and kind of formalize that because it's it's kind of like there are things I can do and can't do. You know, I can't like working with someone like Ok Young Lee, who's a cellist. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like any of the things that she does on the cello, she can more or less call on at any point in time, you know. Um, whereas I'm if I want to do something different to the thing I'm doing right now, I either have to stop and spend a month doing a max to, to do a max patch mm -hmm. or like at least close the patch and open a new one and then pray that it still works because I've not run it for a few months. You know, so it's like your way of relating to your instrument or machine is, is or my way, sorry, of relating to my instrument or machine is, is quite different to the way Ok Young does what she does or um or a percussionist like will guthrie for example um i mean although will might have got not he might have got specific drums that are available to him or not available to him at that time the point i'm making is the technology kind of decides for you gotcha okay in terms of like how it all fits together and i'm kind of happy with that i'm happy to just do i'm happy to follow what the technology is suggesting and uh i don't have a pr problem in in kind of being somehow a slave of technology or something if you see what i mean mm -hmm. like um yeah does that make sense yeah i think so uh with uh collaboration also i'm thinking of like sort of uh i guess like you pulling from other domains and you know, with titles like, you know, uh, periodic orbits of a dynamic system related to a knot and, uh, you know, n-dimensional analysis, um, I'm assuming that you have a fairly rich uh, information diet uh, from other domains. And I'm curious what some of those uh, <laughs> might, like, what some of the most influential things might be, like, if it's like, you know, complexity science or uh, just computer science or like any sort of uh, thing that you have an aesthetic affinity for. In well, I, I have to admit, like, yeah, I mean, basically, I just like nerdy titles. 
So I don't know anything about what they mean. You know, it's like, I just think that's a really great name for a record or, mm-hmm. or, or, I mean, I, I read, I read obsessively, but I don't read scientific stuff because I didn't study science. So a lot of it, you know, I'll, I'll read kind of popular science. I'll read, you know, uh, like a kind of, uh, what is it? There's a magazine in Britain called New Scientist, I think it is. But, you know, it's kind of interesting, but that's my level of engagement with science, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just, I'm fixated on titles, basically. <laughs> like, my entire life is a search for titles, <laughs> projects. Um, Do you have an ongoing list of titles? Yeah, it's, like, insanely long. Like, because it's been there for, like, probably like 20 years now building this this list of unused titles um and you know whenever i get a project it's like i look back at that list and sometimes there's something there and sometimes there isn't but you know i can spend i can spend like months delaying a release because i've not got the right title Mm -hmm. um because the title is is such a important part of the work you know um like uh it, it completely changes how you perceive the work so the title is a really important part of it for me so um then i guess like with the algorithms that you're using for something like multi-stability um or like really just anything like I, i've heard you speak about like lorenz attractors and that type of thing so um i'm curious is are the algorithms you use a little bit more like homegrown or like is there any way that you could classify them or sort of like categorize them uh, in terms of uh, you know other terminology that other domains would use. Yeah, I mean the the the, the methods that I use are like incredibly simple, like extremely simple uh, ways of just generating timing data. Basically, I mean the thing that I do is is use Max to generate timing structures like rhythmic pulses. Um, and it can be as simple as just like a loop of different durations you know that just loops around to create like a a rhythmic structure the Lorenz attractor thing I think might have been in reference to Evol so Evol uh, this guy Rock from Barcelona I remember having a conversation with him once about Lorenz attractors but that kind of thing doesn't feature in my work at all you know it's it's um it's really really simple interactions of metronomes Mm -hmm. and lists of stuff um and for me the simpler the the procedure the better i guess Mm -hmm. um just because it appeals to me you know it appeals to me to to make the max patch as as bare as possible. Um, yeah, I'm sort of glad to hear that you aren't a, like a, a mathematics uh, expert because I'm I'm very much the same way. I just sort of I'll go through a Wikipedia uh, rabbit hole of like this looks really interesting and sort of engaging with you know like physics concepts or whatever on a more like an aesthetic level, which I feel like is kind of how you should. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, so in terms of your rhythmic patches um i'm curious um is it typically like from like a small granular granular unit that's like multiplied out or is it more like sort of like pulses are divided down into smaller units or 
Um, is it more just about like absolute units? Like, you know, uh, are they ever non-proportional to each other or um, how do you sort of think about those combinations of durations and impulses? Well, it could it could be something like a list, like two, three, seven, four, nine. Mm-hmm. And then you multiply and then that becomes a loop. So you just step through that that series of values, but then you multiply that by 100 to create an, a duration in milliseconds that makes sense. So 200 milliseconds, 300 milliseconds, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just that simple. Um, it's not like I'm trying to kind of hide anything. It's just, there's not really anything to say, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Um, Sorry, uh, what am I trying to ask? Uh, is there like a, a smallest rhythmic threshold that you use? Like a hundred milliseconds is, you know, that's pretty quick already. Um, and I feel like I, like you sent me a patch way back to look through and it was super insightful for me to uh, get. To what was the patch? I can't remember what it was. Um, I mean, it, it basically was doing what you were doing where you could sort of like click something and it would uh, put out different like uh, multipliers for like a, a base uh, sort of unit size. At least that's how I'm yeah. recollecting it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 like with this, the, the kind of speed of events in, in Max, sometimes it might be that it goes down to like two or three milliseconds, you know? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and and uh, yeah, but you know, in Max, there's this distinction between the kind of uh, control rate signals and the audio rate signals um so so it's not like you can kind of sweep all the way through from a kind of control rate into the sampling frequency if you see what i mean mm-hmm. um like like you know there's a dip, there's a distinction there between those two timing domains of the the dsp and the control rate right right so it's kind of like on a on a timing clock or something it'll get to one millisecond and then because the object, because it's done at that control rate, it won't be able to go faster than that. Do you see what I mean? I think not, so, really, yeah. not really clearly. Yeah, I mean, um, I assume you're using like all these uh, time units or integers and like you aren't going to floating points or anything. It, it can go to floating points, but like, um, you know, cause if you, if you step in between one, two, three, four, five milliseconds, on a clock and you trigger an event like those steps will be quite different you know like the difference between one millisecond and two milliseconds is twice as much right uh so that's quite a big step so it is nice to have that floating point control there gotcha. okay um so uh, another thing i remember you mentioning uh you brought up like uh gestalt and how that sort of uh has influenced how you think of things and in terms of like these rhythmic structures i'm wondering if that's sort of where that comes into play and if you can speak about that at all yeah i mean i did this album called multi-stability and when i was making it i had a different name in mind for the album so i'm not going to tell you what the name was (laughs) but basically i'm making this album and then at some point i'm thinking the name doesn't feel right what name am i looking for and i came across this idea of multi-stability which is like the, the 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 thing where you look at an object and you can see it from several you see several different things you know it resolves in different you know it might you might be seeing it from this angle and it's like this or this angle it's like this but 
but the the different positions that you the, the different things you see are mutually incompatible so you can never see them both at the same time hmm. and that's like a really interesting sort of thing like and also it's not just that um the thing that you view changes you know you either see it see this object or this object for each object you see it from a different point of view you know so like um it might be that that when you look at this thing and you see it in one way that your relationship to it as the viewer is like over here whereas if you look at this other um if you see it in another way it might be that you view that you're viewing it from above or something mm -hmm. so the idea of multi-stability isn't just about the form of the thing you perceive shifts but that you, your position as the perceiver is also shifting and that for me was a really interesting idea so when i first got the word multi-stability as the title i didn't know all this i just thought that's a nice word but then read more and more about it and considered more and more what what the what this thing meant and now that the actual concept of multi-stability is like really really important to me you know like in terms of like relationships to technology or how we relate to the world etc um so yeah is there any uh, reading you would suggest on these topics um i don't know actually like I mean, there are people that deal with it in terms of like, like the field of phenomenology. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just just Google like multi-stability phenomenology or something. Um, cool. That I will do that. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like, I kind of like it when people find their own way to things. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of people these days, a lot of people are getting in touch with me saying, can you share this Max patch that you just showed? And it's like these days, I'd much rather explain what the Max patch is doing mm -hmm. and then let that person have a go at making it. Not because I want to protect, protect my knowledge, but if they have a go at making it, they're going to do something a little bit different. Right. You know, so they're going to learn something that they wouldn't learn if I just gave it to them probably. But also they're going to do something a bit different. They're going to make it a different way. They might make some mistakes and do something that they didn't intend. And that's a really important thing because it means not only are they learning, but they're actually potentially changing, not just doing what they expect, but just something new comes out of it for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's um, that's kind of like the way I kind of approach it now. So rather than just say, read this and read this, and this is the max patch. I think it's nice if people just, like all my knowledge came out of stumbling, across, you know, just, just, just finding things randomly. Um, so I have a, a sort of rapid fire section I was gonna do called buzzwords and name drops. Um, okay. So just get a, sort of your uh, response to a few things quickly. And I was gonna do that later, but I'm just gonna drop a few of them real quick. Um, in terms of gestalt are you familiar with steven lahar he's like a sort of like psychedelic uh gestalt guy i'm curious if that's ever come up in your uh, no reading. actually no um yeah he does a lot of stuff about phenomenology um specifically sort of as related to psychedelics and um 
he's like a you know, professor, so he's very much not like that type of psychedelics person. But I was just curious. If it that... sounds interesting. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I. I'm not a drug user. Basically, I don't. I, I'm not someone. I've never even smoked a cigarette ever. Mm -hmm. um, I'm like, yeah, I've never. I've yes. Yeah, so I'm like the least. Not having said that, all my friends are like massive drug users. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm the I'm the kind of person in the room that's always looking after them, or was always looking after them back in the days when that sort of thing happened. Um, but yeah, I think psychedelic research is a really important field of research, especially in like uh, treat, treatment for mental health disorders. I think the whole war on drugs has basically had a terrible effect on. Uh, holding back research on how this this these these compounds can actually do the the therape therapeutic benefit of these compounds um especially like you know lsd and mdma and stuff i'm not advocating drug use by the way right 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 drugs drugs are dangerous but um i think you know if if you if they are administered by people who know what they're doing you know and and um, it's been, it, this is a really interesting area of research, I think, right now. The use of psychedelics for mental health disorders mm -hmm. is quite interesting. Um, with uh, Stephen Lahar, I, I sort of am curious because he's talking so much about like information processing. And uh, like, I, I actually like, I was reminded of you bringing up Gestalt because he mentioned it. And I was like, you know, uh, Markel said this. But uh, uh, sorry, the, the other person I want to mention to you, uh, sort of based on the like, superhuman precision that would go along with like a multi-stability performance if they're not done algorithmically is a uh, Kanlan Nankaro. Uh, do you like his music at all? Or do you follow him? Or did you? I don't, I don't, I mean, I've heard the name and I've come across some stuff, but the fact that I don't really know much about it tells me that I wasn't particularly interested. He's like the player piano sort of like micro timing boogie yeah. boogie guy. Uh, yeah. I was just curious if uh, if you followed his music at all or if it was something of interest. Um, no, I mean, there are... Yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah, I just... Uh, yeah, no comment. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, so multi-stability you've performed, uh, I think, nearing 100 times. I'm curious how has the patch changed at changed at all uh, over those performances and sort of have you found like new little like areas of interest in the dynamics of the patch that you like to explore or how has it sort of developed over the years so it's not developed at all basically i i the first time i performed it it was a little bit short and i thought i need an extra track so i added a track at the beginning so and the second time i performed it that track at the beginning was there but apart from that, it's exactly the same patch. Nothing has changed at all about it. Um, and I kind of, I've kind of delib deliberately kind of kept it that way because um, it's kind of nice to have that amount of time to just, like when I perform it, it's kind of, it's similar, but sort of different each time, you know, like um, it follows a, generally speaking the same path, but like it dwells in different areas and sometimes moves to different spaces so I, I like the the idea that it's a kind of very well trodden path mm -hmm. 
but that I can kind of occasionally when the conditions are right, it's like, oh, I'm just going to sort of meander over there. I've never, never been in that little bit before. Sort of, you know, what, what's down there? Um, and, and by that, I mean a combination of parameters or something or that, um, that I've not explored or tried. And it's kind of nice to try that in front of an audience as well, you know, like um, sometimes in performances, <clears throat> it feels to me like when the conditions are right, the, the kind of pressure to just get through the show sort of like subsides and it's like okay I'm kind of feeling like I can just sort of meander a bit now you know and, and I can just wander and and see what I find and that's kind of a nice thing to do in front of an audience but it doesn't always happen mm -hmm. um, you know it's a lot of the time it's like okay I, I just go through it I don't want it to crash and I enjoy it you know and I can see the audience it's not like I'm totally cynical about it I'm enjoying listening to the sound and it feels nice but I've become aware that there are just these times when it feel when there's this something else happens and I'm, it's not anything magical or mystical or anything. It's just this kind of sense of like, you kind of let yourself be vulnerable sort of. And, and, and there's this kind of thing where this, this new thing comes out sort of, of you know, and it's kind of like, yeah. Uh, in terms of the parameters, do you feel like uh, are most of the ranges of numbers that you use always the same? Like, do you just sort of pull a different set of numbers from the same uh, collection of numbers, or do you change the ranges that you deal with with different performances? Well, the the parameters have fixed limits, basically. So I, I use this object called the multi slider a lot. So the multi-slider, uh, you know, you can have a range of values from like two to 10 or something or zero to 3000. Mm -hmm. And I, I wouldn't actually change that in the context of a performance. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't change it basically. Mm -hmm. um, so that set of options is always, always remains the same. But, you know, even, even with that limited set of parameters, you can produce a massive amount of variety of rhythmic structures, I think. <clears throat> I mean, they're all going to sound pretty mental and like the kind of stuff I do, you know, they're not going to be, uh, you know, you're not suddenly going to get something like, uh, how can I put it? A, a kind of quite recognizably normal time structure. Mm -hmm. See what I mean? Um, yeah, so it's not like, for me, I, I don't really need more and more options. For me, what makes sense is having fewer and fewer options and finding the point where you can reduce those options to the to it feeling right, if you see what I mean. Like when I when I was doing a lot of shows with SND, the first time I started to use Max, like about 1998, I decided that I wanted to use it to build some live performance tools so that we could perform live. Because I didn't just want to go and you know mix sound files or or whatever, which is fine if people want to do that. It's just I didn't want to do it. You know, I wanted to I wanted to mess about with algorithms and change the patterns and have this kind of sense of like elastic sort of stuff that I'm moving around. And so the first things we did were like 
would have lots and lots of controls you know we'd have like multi like we'd have kind of fader banks and things with hundreds of knobs well not hundreds but you know certainly like 50 knobs or something and lots of faders and um i remember saying to matt after some shows like what do you actually do like what are we actually doing here have you noticed what we're doing and he's like well yeah like in track one i kind of turn this dial sometimes and press that button and i'm like yeah i kind of like sometimes i move this fader and then once or twice i might press that button and it's like why have we got all this stuff we can just like reduce it and just and also just reduce the interface to the things that make sense to us you know the and what we'd found were the parameters that were the musical parameters and ignored all the others. And so that really changed how I, I started to work, you know. So from this belief in like, I want more, I want more parameters. Oh yeah, I can get another fader bank and we can add that there. And I can get an extra monitor on my computer and we can have like a dozen more things. This idea that more control leads to better music or better experience was the opposite of what I was finding. You know, it's like, I just need, I need, I need two or three dials. That's all I need to do in a show is just twiddle those two or three dials and just become focused on that, you know, and, and have that sense of zooming in on the detail of what's happening when you're just twiddling those two or three dials. And um, yeah, so that's, I can't remember what question, what the question was. Uh, neither can I. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, this, I guess this hints at some stuff like performance and like instruments. And I feel like, you know, uh, for you, I think the instrument and the composition are essentially the same. Like there's this sort of like non-dual element to it. Um, and myself, like I, I'm a guitarist or I, like I, you know, I've studied guitar for a long time. And then there was a period of time when I was just like, this is stupid. This is a heavy instrument that I have to carry around. And this laptop is like so powerful. And so I had this sort of utilitarian feeling of like, I need to move entirely to the laptop i'm curious how you think about like sort of traditional instruments and uh the, the future of traditional instruments well traditional instruments are amazing <laughs> like um like like the cello we talked about ok young lee the cello is probably like one of the most amazing synthesizers ever built you know it's like it's mind-blowingly brilliant i wish there was a treble but treble dial on it because i would i would turn the treble up a little bit um but um but yeah it's it's so the for me there's no there's no kind of like uh, opposition between digital tools or like electric you know analog tools or acoustic implements like um there are things that i like more than others you know mm -hmm. but um you know, there's there's room on the planet for all of us. I think um, that. I mean, having said that, if you'd asked me this question thirty years ago, I would have said, you know, let's build a big fire and we'll get all the guitars and all the cellos and all the pianos. We'll put them all on the fire. We'll burn the lot and we'll just use drum machines. But you know, I was a naive, angry little kid <laughs> who who didn't have a clue about stuff. You know, I knew about elect. I knew a lot about the kind of electronic music music I was into, but I didn't I didn't know anything about anything else really, because I didn't have any access to, you know, no one, I didn't have anyone around me saying, this is some really good piano music you should listen to. 
you or, or this is a really good or orchestral composition you ought to try and check out you know i didn't have that so it's like because i was in this position of this totally sort of almost random um means of encountering music that if i if i wasn't lucky i just i just didn't find it um you know, I, I remember going into the record shops and looking in the classical music sections and, and occasionally buying something and getting home and thinking, this is just terrible. What have I wasted my money on? But, you know, I'm sure there was something good in that record rack. It's just I didn't know what I was looking for. But um, so, yeah, like I'm actually increasingly more interested in acoustic tools because mm. I think um, they are amazing. I mean, I approach them like synthesizers, you know, they're, they're amazing synthesizers. Like the orchestra is like the most amazing synthesizer you can, well, it's probably not the most amazing synthesizer, but it's a very, you know, if you think of it as a very, very complex spatial sonic mm -hmm. synthesizer, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's also it's the added complexity of uh, all the personalities, I guess. And, uh, yeah. But but actually, you can. It's almost like you can forget the music and just get it to make sound. Like a really important experience for me when I was a kid, I was like, I was at this. I was in London on a school trip or something, and we went to the Barbican. So the Barbican's like a kind of concert hall and exhibition space and stuff, and we were there to see this exhibition on like design. But in the concert hall, you know, in the adjoining room, there was this amazing music coming out, and I was like oh my God, what is this? I've never heard anything like this before. It's fantastic. What is it? And it was the orchestra tuning up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I enjoyed that more. I didn't go and see the performance. I don't know what they were doing. But just this orchestral tuning of people going in and and the randomness of it all. It was just like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. And it was just them tuning up. <laughs> Um, and I think it's because it, for me, it didn't have all that kind of mute, this kind of quite boring musical language around it, you know. Um, and obviously some people like that stuff and they're, they're entitled to like that. I personally don't. And, I'm, and, you know, disagreeing about these things is actually quite a healthy um, thing to do, I think. Um, I can appreciate so, yeah. you being into the the instruments in their sort of traditional form, and I'm the naive sort of uh, the young one who's you know being critical. But I think my issues are one that you know, like you said, uh, sort of like the boring music, which is like I feel like if like there's a lot of like classical essentialism, which I think is just like kind of aesthetic conservatism, and you know, so like if you're you know working with somebody like Aki Young Lee, then that's a different ballgame. The other thing I don't like is like gear fetishism. And um, yeah. I feel like, you know, you seem to be in the same boat, like, uh, by using Max and sort of avoiding this, like, I have the newest, uh, you know, DAW that has all these functions and, you know. Well, I could e really easily, I could really easily become a gear fetishist. It's just, I never had the money to do it. Mm -hmm. But, but, but like, when I was a kid, I bought, like, the, the synthesizer magazines, there was one or two synthesizer magazines in Britain at that time. I bought them every month. And you could, and I never used any of these synthesizers because I didn't have the money, but you could have asked me any question about any synthesizer that was on the market then. And I would have been able to describe it in complete detail, you know, like what were the quirks? What were the things 
what were what were its strengths and weaknesses and i never heard them i never used one um so i, I could really easily be a a complete gear nerd but for me the way that manifests itself is you get one thing and look very closely mm-hmm. just that's that's my gear nerd and sort of <laughs> i mean it doesn't seem as much like it's you uh, you know having toys and like your your toy cars and your like collections of this like it's not as much that like it's more respectable i think to you know, want to know the nitty-gritty of how things work and sort of how to use it to its fullest yeah yeah I assume you would so yeah but um but in one set there's these days i am a bit of a gear nerd in terms of tools so i buy i mean like woodworking tools or like uh house you know household tools i'm really obsessed with tools like i i could quite easily my ideal night in is spending three hours looking through a catalog that contains lots of different pliers for example because <laughs> they just they're such beautiful objects you know like i'm i'm and i'm really obsessed with tools um what defines and a good really good plier? quality tools as well what sorry <laughs> what makes a good plier i don't know but there's some you when you get a really some really well-made tools uh it makes a big difference i think to the feel of them um so i, I want German to be... go on sorry no no you say what you're gonna say there's a german company i don't know if they're called nipex or it's like k-n-i-p at nipex and they make about about three thousand different kinds of pliers <laughs> it seems mm-hmm. and it's like oh wow i would love to go into their head office and just try all of them if there's anyone from nipex ever hears this please <laughs> invite me. um yeah i, I don't know if i have that many uh listeners but uh, hopefully yeah. um so i, I want to respect your time but i have a chunk more questions to ask you um i mean we can go on as long as you want i'm i'm not doing anything so just awesome. great that's that's a uh, very uh awesome uh so uh focal music is sort of like uh something that interested me because it's you know it's this piece that's uh, you're feeding real performers like sort of uh cues through headphones as far as i know and it's sort of yeah. about their reaction time and i think that so many people um have this sort of issue with electronic music and the synthetic sort of like non-performed quality um like people want to see a dj in front of a laptop even if they're pressing spacebar and um so i'm curious like this vocal music seems like some of the more human oriented like it's like you're imprinting sort of like the reaction time and the specifically human inaccuracies um how did you come to that or is that how you think about it at all do you want to deny any of that yeah well and um, uh, first of all in terms of performance like i think you can either give in to the pressures of like doing all the performance habits or not, you know, I mean, like, I, I don't think I give in to those habits, you know, like I, I go and do what I want to do. Um, and for me, like, um, creating that kind of moment of hysteria or like emotional, um, communion with, with whatever is like, it's not my aim, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I'm just there making some nice sound at high volumes. And that's what it's about for me. Um, so the so the focal music stuff wasn't really about trying to kind of bring that 
that into it you know that there's a performance quality or so, you know it was it started i i was well, i was asked to do this residency program uh who run by a guy called jan hendrickson who's a who's a flute player and kind of theorist from britain uh and since and actually after doing that workshop we became great friends he, he led the workshop but we became really great friends and he's we you know we talk every few days now um, but as part of this workshop, I was with like lots of um, people who were performing, you know, like acoustic musicians or composers and stuff. And I was the kind of token gesture sort of electronic music person uh, in there. And um, we had to do this before. And, you know, I found it kind of quite uncomfortable most of the time because it was like, I, not because I found it challenging in any kind of constructive sense, if you know what I mean. I mean, they're all really nice. They were exceptionally nice people, but it was like, I didn't feel that, how can I put this? It was like people saying, constantly saying things like, let's think outside the box mm. kind of stuff. And then, and then, just doing you know the most boring stuff imaginable and i'm like you know it's like i don't want to think outside the box i want to look in the box i want to see what you've got in the box do you know what i mean yeah. um i'm being a bit too critical about it there it was actually i mean it was a great program i actually learned a lot so it did the right thing and jan was a brilliant guy to lead it so it's not but I, you know it's just like that whole kind of music muso kind of bunch of people when I'm in that bunch of people, I'm automatically feeling like I don't belong, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Like there's something like, uh, yeah. Um, so basically as part of this thing, I was like, we've got to do a performance. Okay, I'll generate a pattern on these headphones and get this drummer to just hit it, hit the snare drum in time with the pattern. And um, so it was like meant to be performed in front of the rest of the group. And and we had a go at it. And the very first thing the drummer did was like, or something as he started. I was like, what was that bit? He's like, oh, that's kind of what you do when you start. I was like, well, that's not what we're doing, is it? Like, if you hear a pulse, you play a sound. Mm -hmm. And straight away, I became aware that of this kind of idea of performance that's about gesture and, and um, signaling these things, you know, about... Um, not just the bare performance as a kind of procedural thing that you just follow, you know, in a kind of dispassionate manner. So it's like, okay, I'm really interested. This has got me really interested now about how to actually short circuit this, these ideas of skill and perfection. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, this kind of focal music work often took people will bring up, um, this kind of movement, this new complexity movement where the, the work is so difficult that performers struggle to perform it. And my emphasis is slightly different from that. It's not about the skill required is like incredibly technical and you have to learn, you know, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a thing of like, your skill will never be enough to perform this piece of work. Mine is, my emphasis is more like, what's the border of, of our cognitive ability sort of if you see what i mean totally. like where do our like there's some some uh, quote that i found from some neuroscience journal 
but I do read some neuroscience journals. Um, there's some quote about um, chimpanzee, rhesus monkeys cannot clap in time. They can pretend to clap in time, but if you give them a regular pulse, they just can't do it, you know. It'll always be slightly delayed, so they're very good at imitating where the pulse is. And it's like, well, there's something really peculiarly human about this thing of being able to clap in time, you know. So I was like, well, what, what would be the rhesus monkey? What would be the human equivalent of the rhesus monkey? And what happens if you find an incredibly skilled performer and you kind of ask them to do things that aren't necessarily technically too difficult, but just cognitively quite challenging? So that was what the whole focal music thing was. It was about how do you, yeah, just like what happens in those situations. And, and I kind of liked that. And, and in a way, it's kind of like my approach to electronic instruments is that you, you, get, you get a single unit and you foreground its particular characteristics, you know, like, like that's kind of how intuitively that's how I've always worked with equipment like you get a drum machine and oh if you do this to it it produces this and it's kind of weird and um it's not really the thing that was intended by the drum machine designer you know mm -hmm. um or you you know just just the interaction of some parameters can create these kind of weird instabilities in the the sound or something um and I kind of like that. And then someone pointed out to me that that's actually what I'm doing. It's kind of like what I'm doing with people in that focal music um, series of works. So that's what it was about, really. Um, but also, in another sense, it was about the instrument not being subject to this kind of completely micromanaged musical thing, you know. So there's this, there's a kind of belief that, that you get a kind of aesthetic perf perfection by being increasingly micromanaging about the, you know, the human control of the object mm -hmm. is escalated to the point where, where the, you get this insane, insane level of micromanagement. And I'm kind of like going the opposite direction. It's about relinquishing control and letting things come from a place outside your expectations for me offers produces things that i find more interesting so it's this kind of scale between like micromanagement of instruments on the one hand and the opposite of micromanagement on the other hand but yeah that's that's i think that's what i don't like about a lot of acoustic music that it's it's very much about skill and control and gesture rather than just the looseness of it, if you see what I mean. And that, I'm sure that's not a particularly radical or new position. I'm not adopting that position out of any kind of, uh, you know, claim to be revolutionary. You know, I'm just, just like, that's kind of what ticks my box. So I'm, that's where it is. Um, I have another name drop for you. And I, I don't want you to assume that uh, I, I'm thinking he's from Sheffield he must know somebody from Wales but are you familiar uh, with Dave Snowden and uh, he's like a like an old IBM researcher and uh, he has this Kinevin framework no I've not heard of him um, yeah I mean and not to you know just assume that what, what, <laughs> uh, what uh, so the the Kinevin framework is this like uh, 
thing that discusses uh, like chaos versus complexity versus complication. And you know, you mentioned the new complexity movement, and like I assume you're referring to like uh, Brian Ferniho and stuff. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sure that's how you say his name, but um, uh, so basically in this model, uh, a Ferniho would be like essentially complicated because it's you know extremely sort of you know pinned down, restrictive, and requires extreme expertise. Like it's uh, kind of fragile. Like you know, if you are in the midst of it, you'll probably just fall apart uh, if you make one mistake, um, mm. and then. On the other hand, complexity, uh, he's saying, is more like a combination of simple things that uh, sort of creates this emergent uh, thing instead of, you know, it's uh, it's not like the same, like, over-regulation of complication. And so it seems like in having these simpler structures, you're aiming more for that sort of complex emergent uh, type thing instead of, like, uh, yeah, over-explicit. But- over yeah, but also just just the interaction of simple elements, even if the music is like structurally quite simple, that's mm-hmm. kind of all right. You know, I'm, I'm not. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to kind of. Uh, like, I wouldn't say a lot of people say my music is complex, but for me, it is, uh, it, I'm actually trying to be simple, I think, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so maybe like it's unfamiliar. And that's why, and people maybe call it complicated because it's unfamiliar, but actually it's not like, like musically, the structures are like super basic, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but I think it seems to yield more than the sum of its parts. Like there seems to be some sort of synergistic uh, element that, you know, is the secret sauce, or at least that's how I, I feel about your music. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Um, <laughs> like, like it's certainly not as complex as anything like Britney Spears. <laughs> you know, with that, just in, in basic terms, those those constructions, those pop music constructions are incredibly complicated, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I I'm, I'm in a weird position, so... Yeah, like, I guess my view is the least valid of everyone's because I'm actually so close up to it, you know. Um, um, we can keep going if you want. Yeah, I, I have a bunch of other things to ask you. Um, yeah, no so uh, let's see here. If if I stop this interview now, I have to go and make some food. So like my way of getting out of making food is by carrying on with this. <laughs> so you're doing me a favor. <laughs> I don't want you to go hungry though. Um, so uh, yeah, well, uh, Ryan's making the food, but if I stop, I'll be making the food. Gotcha. I see. <laughs> uh, so. Sensate focus and uh, like the house music influence. Uh, you know, a lot of people might, you know, listen to your music and say, "I don't hear any house or techno." Um, and it seems like it's sort of manifested in this very like fractionated um, way that's really interesting. And I just wanted to talk about some uh, specifics there. So, like, um, I feel like in house, there's a lot of like parallel harmony, and it seems like this thing where you have a chord and you just pitch it up or down. Um, I'm curious if you have any sort of terminology you've come across for that like that sort of tendency and how to have parallel movement not not really but also for me the thing that that really that i really latched onto in i mean it's kind of you know i talked about how my encounters in music are always very random the, the kind of piece of house music the the kind of club music record that really changed which was really important to me was uh, 
a Mark Kinchin remix of something. I think it was like, uh, oh, I can't remember what it was now. But anyway, I, the reason that I bought it was it, it was in the reduced to clear bin in my local record shop. So it's like 50 pence. It was the only thing I could afford on that day. And I got it and it was like, wow, this is amazing. But what I particularly liked about it was the kind of combination of rhythmic elements and cut a chord, you know, like a kind of just a lush chord going like, doing its thing but just how the how these combinations of elements were so carefully constructed i mean it might have been that it was quite an intuitive process of making it but listening to the record these interlocking elements were just like totally mind-blowing to me it was like wow that's like you know it's really reduced into this basic geometry of these elements but in particular what i really liked was how the chord sound extended and contracted in times of in terms of its duration you know so it might be a longer sound or a shorter sound and from that moment that became my fascination just like the, the duration the relative changes in duration in, in a chord sound um and it still is you know it's like uh yeah but in terms of what you're talking about is when a when a keyboard when several notes are sampled and moved up and down as a singular sample, mm -hmm. it's quite different from playing it on a keyboard. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and like you know, as compared to like uh, sort of more Western, uh, like counterpoint oriented, like uh, you know, very like you know, there's like this idea of like don't use parallel fifths uh, in a lot of. I don't know what a parallel fifth is. There's this whole thing in like writing chorales that you don't want to have uh, fifths move in parallel because it sounds against the church or whatever you know um so, yeah but uh, yeah. yeah if someone said don't do that because it's not meant to sound good i'd actually that would make me find that that would give me pleasure mm -hmm. <laughs> i don't know why that's how twist i was thinking the other day i went i went to some kind of conference on neuroaesthetics and and it's like imagine that they found they could press a button they installed a button on your head and you and you they press this button and it gave you the most intensely aesthetic experience. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So you got the aesthetic experience button on your head and it's just doing some kind of basic neurological stuff, you know. I was thinking, if they install that button on me, I'd refuse to enjoy that experience. Interesting. You know what I mean? I'd mm -hmm. even, I'd have the experience, then I'd, I'd feel disgusted at the fact that someone made me feel that way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. And when I hear all this talk about like, you're not supposed to enjoy this or you're not supposed to, you know, it's like, for me that automatically sets it up for being a pleasurable experience. I don't know why it is. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah, like when yeah. I was at art school, it's like, no, if you paint a landscape, you can't have the tree in the middle. It's got to go slightly that side so that it's, it, it kind of works according to this ratio of like whatever there's this ratio that says if you put it there it's going to be feel really good but if you put it in the middle it'll just be wrong and it's like i'm putting it in the middle i i prefer it in the middle do you know what i mean yeah yeah totally i mean um, there's definitely this whole idea of like uh or actually, you go ahead no go on uh, i forgot what i was gonna say so you go but it's yeah it's like um and it's not that i'm pretending that like when i look at the tree slightly to the left in, re in real terms, I'm kind of enjoying it more and I'm just being antagonistic because I want the tree in the middle. 
I actually like the way the tree's in the middle. I like the I like that feeling of it, you know. I like the fact that someone else doesn't like it. But you you like FM synthesis a lot. Uh, I do too. Um, and I know that you've uh, worked with John Chowning or collaborated with him. And I was wondering if you could just sort of uh, uh, tell any stories about that or uh, you know share what that experience was like. John Chowning is like absolutely brilliant he's like one of the most intelligent people i've ever met in my life like um and and you know i've been using fm synthesis a lot and and he is so incredibly generous with his time and he said look mark i'd like to talk to you about i'd like to show you some things of fm synthesis you won't you probably didn't you probably haven't encountered and i was like in my head i'm thinking well i can't imagine what that would be and then he kind of did this sort of walk through of these few things and it was like, oh my God, like this is like properly mind blowing, like um, using like three operator FM synthesis to model uh, formants, for example, and, and voice like structures. Hmm. Um, and yeah, all, a whole bunch of stuff. But um, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was really nice to meet John and to, and just to have time to talk to him about about his work, you know, and like um, and the discovery of FM synthesis, and um, yeah, it was it was good. <laughs> I can't think of anything else to say about it. Um, but yeah, he's clearly an, an exceptionally intelligent person. You know, that, that he kind of uh, realized what, you know, he'd realized when he, when this was happening and he was hearing these results, he realized the implications of it, basically. In um, terms of the, the modeling, the formants and stuff like that, is there any sort of like terminology that I could like dig into Wikipedia with on this or like any sort of technical term? I don't know, actually. I, I mean, I don't know if... if um or should i just bother him over email you could do yeah if you want to um but yeah i don't i don't know if he's published any of this work so it's but but basically he was doing this kind of um also a lot a, a lot of it um referring back to kind of gestalt principles as well like how uh how we perceive sounds or how we how we how um yeah, how we make sense of the auditory environment is, is kind of uh, interesting work. Um, I, I tend to, I guess, do FM synthesis and uh, not much else, like some sampling here and there, but uh, I'm curious if like other modes of synthesis are attractive to you or if you've gotten any good results from them or uh, if you're just kind of FM all the way. Well, uh, just like subtractive synthesis is nice as well, you know, and um, uh also physical modeling you know I've, I've been using a lot of physical modeling synthesis recently um and that yeah yeah i mean i, I just uh fm synthesis is my favorite you know m m sort of way of dealing with uh the the, the kind of 
organization of spectral content over time, I guess. But um, but yeah, I guess uh, I went through a phase of using Razor quite a lot. You know, Eric Aerosmith developed this synth Razor in. I've heard a little bit about this. But it, I'm not familiar. You? But basically, that is kind of like an additive model. Or it's kind of it's a it's an imp implementation of that sounds like subtractive synthesis, but using additive techniques, huh. I guess is how you describe it. Um, and that's quite nice. But um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I guess recently, like physical modeling is something I've been using quite a bit of, I guess. Um, but yeah, I still use, I still love FM synthesis. In terms of uh, percussion sounds, I know that you sort of like have uh, like favored drum machine, like you know, classic drum machine, machine sounds. Uh, do you ever sort of synthesize the percussion sounds from the ground up or is that not interesting to you or? It is interesting. It's just never, I never managed to do it very well. You know, like, like trying to synthesize a Lin kick, mm -hmm. a Lin kick drum is actually really difficult for me anyway you know to get that to get it sound like what i'd like to have is i'd like to get rid of all the samples and just have like synthesis models for each of the percussion um bits of the of the track but there's something about using samples that that i find for some reason it just adds a quality that 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 is different to when it's entirely synthetic synthesis right. um but um yeah that's what i like to do to build synthesis models but i've it, it never sounds as good um, or not as good it doesn't have the character that i'm after if you right. see what i mean I think actually some of my synthesized drums I like the most, but I think that they're probably the worst that <laughs> I use. Like, there's something about the worstness that I like about them. Yeah. But yeah, it would be it would be nice to have some good drum machine synth models. I think mm -hmm. actually maybe that's something that Max should implement in one of their little. Uh, I don't know, starter packs, whatever it is. You know those things that they have the modules that you can blah de blah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like I've always wanted to try to do as much from the ground up with Max. And so I've like sort of foolishly uh, avoided using any usefulness that they've offered. Yeah, I never use that stuff. But I'm I'm like, I, I basically, when each new version of Max comes out, I do my hardest to make it look like Max 4. You know, so I, I hide like, like, when they added the kind of DSP render button on the bottom right hand corner, it's like, I'm never going to touch that, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Um, In terms yeah. of uh, the, like the sound design elements and the, I guess like the more logical sort of uh, like, I don't want to say score elements, but more just like the scheduling of events and uh, like structural elements. How, how separate are those, would you say? Like, um, is it more just, synthesizer triggered by logic or um is there any integration of the two it depends what i'm doing like if i'm doing stuff like the multi-stability stuff for example all the sound is made by vst 
instruments that are embedded in Max. Gotcha. Um, and that, that works quite well for a lot of things for me. But then there are other projects that I do where I'll kind of develop a synthesis algorithm, you know, or some kind of multi speaker thing. Um, and then I guess there's that distinction between the, the kind of pattern generating and the synthesis elements of the patch are not so clearly defined, I guess. Um, yeah, is that kind of what you're asking about? Yeah. Um, yeah, it depends on the project. Like, I think, yeah, I think in some cases there is a very strong distinction between those two bits of the system and then in others it's a bit more blurred where it's yeah where the synthesis is just kind of a bit more self-contained i guess you know if you see what i mean mm -hmm. it's not like here's a box with like control messages going into it it's more like it's just a kind of thing that does its thing sort of mm -hmm. um i just remembered a, a question i forgot to ask um I remember you talking in an interview about, um, I, I was looking back for it and I couldn't find this, uh, but basically like some sort of like little book you were working on or like set of note cards that were kind of like simple instructions or like sort of, uh, you know, like aesthetic guidelines. Uh, can you remind yeah. me what, what that was all about? It was, was going to be called, yeah, it was going to be called something like reduced aesthetics workbook. I got into this idea of reduced aesthetics, which is basically like, if you have a class of students, you basically get them to do things like you can put 10 events. You have 10, two minutes of time in a timeline and you can, put, you can distribute 10 events in that timeline anywhere you want. And they all have to be the same pitch, the same sound. And the only thing you can vary is note duration and velocity. So it's like reducing very, very strict rules about the placement of a few things. And it was kind of like a reaction against this sort of um, feeling of wanting to make a masterpiece or something, you know, or like, or like trying to make this incredibly complex musical stuff that had all these different bits in it and layers and sections and stuff. And so it's kind of like a bit sort of like an attempt to, to kind of, uh, get people out of that way of working. So I've done it a few times with, with a few student groups that I work with, you know, in classes. And um, often people start being with, with kind of, they're quite hostile to that idea, you know, because they just want to make whatever. And I'm like, no, like do this. And then actually after a while of doing that, it kind of like sort of changes the way you approach stuff, if you see what I mean. Because yeah, you start to focus on like, oh, this is quite interesting, you know. Um, but yeah, I never, I never finished that. Uh, it was meant to be a series of cards, and it never got finished. I think it was there was a there was a gallery in London that were thinking about making it and selling it, and that never happened. How extensive was it, or is it? Well, I only did like it, I just made a few examples, so I did like about four different examples and gave it to this gallery and they were like yeah 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 and then nothing came of it um and then you know i've kind of 
more recently I've kind of taken that idea and kind of developed and developed it. You know, I, I, I had this job in Germany uh, the past year and, you know, I do that kind of work with those, you know, like kind of develop these very limited options that, that they could work in. And um, yeah, I think it's just a nice way of, I think it's important to, for some, sometimes to kind of draw attention to the fact that you don't have to work. You can actually do something quite simple and it can be good enough. If you see what I mean, Definitely. like you, you don't have to overwork stuff. You don't have to keep adding layers or adding complexity. You know, sometimes just a few basic elements is enough. Mm -hmm. And also whenever I have any students, it's like, I kind of have this disclaimer that says like, you know, I'm the kind of person that, that is happy with like hardly anything, you know, like if, if people ask me, what should I do with this track mark? I'll be like, make it like 20 times as long and take everything out apart from one sound, you know, and that's kind of, that's what, you know, that's what works for me. That's what I like. Um, so I have to give that disclaimer to students, you know, that any student of mine might as well give up all hope of being a kind of superstar DJ or whatever, because Mm -hmm. it's like uh it's just not on my agenda at all if you see what i mean mm -hmm. um so yeah i kind of like that idea of reduced aesthetics as a kind of strategy for just confronting that idea that like adding more means better music mm -hmm. and the limitations sounds like something that i've heard people speak of i think called weightlifting or something or like sounds kind of exercise oriented almost like uh to you know strengthen your abilities yeah i've not come across that but that's kind of like uh i guess it maybe it does kind of strengthen that bit of whatever that, yeah that does you know that particular neural pathway that deals with the the length of a chord sound mm -hmm. in a house track you know um so, um, you know, in terms of house music and uh, like the culture surrounding that, uh, and you, you also mentioned that you've never done a drug, uh, but all your friends have done every drug. Um, and well, most of my friends have done most drugs. They're not all done all drugs. Uh, not even that, a lot. You know, you know what it's like. Yeah. Um, my, some of my friends have done some drugs. Okay. But they'll remain. Uh, remain nameless uh yeah. so yeah, at the same time like uh you know the other day i told myself like music is just drugs that you eat with your ears and i like looked back and saw a little clip of your sky dancer performance and i imagine that's um about equivalent to like a high dose of some sort of thing um just in terms of sensory overwhelm um but then on the other hand like uh house music i feel like is very much about dance and like this sort of visceral sort of like you know, like sexual thing. Um, and so I'm curious uh, how the, you know, like visceral sort of like immersive experience matters to you as somebody who's like very sort of like about the form and structure and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird because, you know, like I, I kind of my friendship group at that time were a bunch of kids from Sheffield who were going through, you know, that kind of party scene in Britain really kind of seemed to 
take over everything late 80s early 90s it was like it really you know it it shifted from being a kind of marginal thing to being like you know everyone was suddenly doing it and and there was a lot of drug use you know like a hell of a lot of drug use and i i basically spent i felt part of that scene you know and i liked it but i would spend most of my time just stood stood at the side you know like watching and and you know just not you know i was still kind of a bit sort of um kind of removed from it if you see what i mean because i what you know i wasn't i wasn't uh on drugs dancing all night right. you know i was kind of like so i i kind of like at that point when it switched from being a kind of marginal activity to being a mainstream activity not mainstream but you know a lot more popular mm. my position sort of within that changed quite a lot because i just became increasingly sort of like uninterested in it if you see what i mean um and you know i saw i saw a lot of damage being done uh to people you know like people who who were basically had mental health problems and um becoming quite ill i thought mm -hmm. <laughs> while simultaneously thinking that they were kind of uh in some perfectly blissful state you know what i mean right. so it was kind of like this sort of like quite there was a lot of good stuff about that movement you know it was there was a there was a strong community focus there was you know it was kind of quite um independent it was you know it was it had this kind of feeling of we want to transform society and i think some of that actually worked you know i think in many respects a lot of social attitudes following that house and techno um, moment were kind of, you know, not as xenophobic as the ones that came before. You know, it, it did a lot of good, but I also think it messed up. I saw a lot of people getting messed up. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and and out of that, I guess I just became just just kind of stepped away from it and just became a bit more fixated on like what is it about this music that interests me if you see what i mean um yeah so i guess that's how it happened <laughs> um it um, also makes me think of like sort of initiatory cultures and like that type of thing and sort of like like ecstasis type of experiences and um that reminds me then that you i think you studied carnatic music briefly right yeah i went to india and and i wouldn't say i studied it like a player would study it you know i, I studied the principles of it and um I, I was interested in the kind of the way you know the kind of way that practice is understood by the people that that practice it you know mm -hmm. was was quite interesting um and just yeah just the structure of it and and how it functioned um is quite interesting i think so so for example like um one of the people that, that um 
that I kind of met and we became quite good friends. We're still in touch. Nandini Mutu Swami, who's a who's a incredibly important violin player in Carnatic music tradition. Um, like she will a, a lot of the way she understands what she does really makes a lot of sense to me of someone who's kind of from you know an electronic music background but but never studied western classical music mm -hmm. so a lot of the models that she brings to it or, or or tells me about it kind of makes sense to me you know like about how music is performed and the importance of the audience and uh this kind of middle ground that in in a western vocabulary we find hard to talk about this middle ground between composition and improvisation you know um but in in indian classical music there's this you know it's this other thing that that to us feels like this middle ground between composition and improvisation but but like um my conversations with Nandini, for example, tell me that she's not particularly comfortable with this kind of, you know, her musical worldview is quite different. You know, it's like we define, we see this behavior and we define it in this manner, but she's not at all comfortable with that definition, if you see what I mean. So it's, it's really difficult to, to accurately describe what that mode of performance is, if you see what I mean. Um, and especially because I'm not Indian, it's a bit stupid of me to attempt to do that. Um, but, you know, it just made a lot of sense. And, and also you can see, you know, like when in the 20th century, when there was this, you know, there was a, a growing interest from a lot of Western composers in Indian classical music and how that impacted on like, you know, people like uh, the kind of American minimal, minimalists, for example. Um, it's kind of like, uh, where am I going with this? Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an, but also like there are problems with kinetic practice, you know, like like a, a younger artist who's a really good friend of mine, Nakul Krishnamurti. I don't know if you've heard of Nakul Krishnamurti. He's just released his first record on Cafe Otto. So a lot of Nakul's work is is really looking crit critically at the politics of kinetic practice and, um, especially in, in relation to caste and how that functions. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a complex field, but I'd, ultimately I really like, I just really enjoy listening to kinetic music. Uh, and, and I love the time structures in it. I love the, the how it flows. I love the kind of the progression of it. You know, I love uh, the duration of it. Like, you know, I grew up listening to uh, vinyl albums. And for me, for a long time, that was my kind of basic musical unit was like the album mm -hmm. and the five or six minute tracks that can, that you get on it. And, and now I'm more like, I, I want to listen to something that lasts three hours long and just hovers around, you know, um, and, for me, this one one kind of thing that makes a lot of sense to me is this idea that the music sort of unfolds, sort of, there's this unfolding of musical structure. Um, 
and yeah so that that's kind of that's been really important to me i think to encounter that um, uh, that makes me wonder uh if you were able to sort of like put a number on how much or like yeah a number on like how much music you listen to per day or something or like per week uh how much it would be some days not enough actually like a few days ago i just said you know what i'm not going to do anything today apart from put music on insanely loud and <laughs> sit on the sofa that's all i'm doing all day and it was like oh my god this is fantastic um so actually today I've not listened to any music. I've just been in Zoom meetings all day long. Um, I'd say a, few, a couple of hours a day on average, I listen to music. Um, and I listen to a lot of varied stuff, actually. I think you'd be surprised at the stuff I listen to. Like I listen to loads of Hawaiian music. Because um, my mum, so I, my elderly parents live with us. My mum's got late stage dementia. She's like 88 or something. So dementia's quite bad now. But she loves music. Um, so one of the things we do is we listen a lot to a lot of music together because uh, what one of the consequences of a dementia is that she does a lot of these repeated behaviours like constantly tidying up or constantly moving things or organizing things or getting a little bit confused but when you put music on that all stops and she just folk you can see that she just becomes completely absorbed in in listening <clears throat> and one of the, the, the two favorite kinds of music are hawaiian music and dub reggae so we listen to a, a hell of a lot of lee scratch perry and a hell of a lot of hawaiian guitar and um yeah it's kind of nice so i've kind of got into a lot of hawaiian music recently cool. um yeah do you have any other sort of like uh listening practices that you try to abide by like um do you listen to things all the way through like uh i mean i, I would assume that you do do you uh i mean loudness you said uh is it never on headphones like any sort of guy i would never listen on headphones uh, that would just be like I don't think I could do it. I mean, I used to listen to music on headphones on long haul flights, mm -hmm. um, but that's about the only time I would listen on headphones. It's kind of um, yeah. And, and also I have a weird way of listening to music. So like I tend to, if I'm listening to something on iTunes, for example, like I've got loads of stuff on my laptop, I'll kind of switch through it quite, you know, I very rarely listen all the way through. I'm kind of like chopping all, it's like I just want to chop through it and not not really, I don't really engage with it properly, I think. So one of the things I do that when I'm away from the computer, if I put music on in another room, then I'll kind of, ha I'll actually listen all the way through. Um, and I listen a lot of final as well. Um, there's, I just, yeah, I just, I just like, I like getting records out of the covers. Mm -hmm. I like looking at record covers, you know, I like, yeah, it's a completely different experience. You know, it's like, it's like the difference between drinking tea out of a really nice porcelain cup or a piece of plastic. Right. It's a fundamentally different experience. Um, 
and you know sometimes it's convenient plastic but you don't want it all the time but yeah sit, listening to music at decent volume drinking tea is really nice <laughs> well and i'll ask a few more sort of rapid fire things and then yeah, i'll, I'll let you uh, eat your dinner um so in terms of buzzwords and name drops um I, i'm curious actually just first if you have any sort of favorite uh footwork record or footwork producers i assume that you like i feel like i hear it in uh both you and ryan's music a little bit so um i'm just i assume yeah but i have to be honest that i don't really know anything about that you know i it's like i might have got some records somewhere in the in the recesses of my itunes library that that i come across but i don't have a detailed knowledge of that world but i do really enjoy rp booze music a lot i suppose yeah you did just tell me that you don't listen to electronic music but uh, i had to ask yeah um, yeah yeah uh, uh next one is george lewis who's george lewis the he's a trombonist uh teaches at columbia i believe and he has like the voyager uh computer music system that like plays duets with him all oh, right i don't know his work just curious um, i'm not doing very well on your, <laughs> well, your I mean, I'm, I'm impressed with uh how much random crap i know <laughs> yeah. uh no but uh let's see here um the CCRU, does that mean anything to you? Like the Cybernetic Cultural Research Unit uh, in Warwick? Warwick, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know those people, but it seems like they did incredibly brilliant work. And Robin Mackey, was affiliate, was, who now runs Urbanomic, was part of that group. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm currently writing a book for Urbanomic, which That's I'm cool. supposed to be doing right now. <laughs> and he's emailing me every day saying, where is it? Um, so yeah, they did. They did great work. I mean, I I studied philosophy in Britain. You kind of there's kind of three qualifications. The one you do at school when you're a kid is called O level or GCSE. Then you do an A level, which is this is what it was like when I was a kid. A level is what you do before you go to university. So I studied philosophy A level, but then when I got to university, I did fine art, experimental film. So. I've always read lots of philosophy, but I've not had a proper philosophy education. So there's massive gaps missing. But um, I'm kind of like, uh, I, I'm kind of like in between, you know, like in, in, in Western philosophy, there's a kind of, there's a, a broadly speaking, there's a distinction between like a kind of uh, English speaking analytic school and the continental stuff and the continental stuff is the mixed bag of sort of like um positions that are, are often a lot more kind of like dealing with um how shit life is basically um and it, it's it, i'm kind of shifted from from like this interesting kind of hardcore analytic philosophy to the kind of more european stuff if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um, um does the name like david pierce or uh, like transhumanism or hedonistic comparative mean anything to you no it doesn't i'm really doing bad on I mean, on the things sorry no no it's, uh, no problem uh, uh then uh, uh you got to keep going till i actually know one 
uh, let's see here. Uh, like, I guess machine learning uh, in general, adversarial networks and uh, GPT-3. I know what machine learning is, but I don't know what the other stuff is. Wow. Um, but GPT-3 is like this text engine that's like doing a pretty good job of writing, convincing, uh, like just convincing content. Like you can have it write simulated stories uh, or like uh, you know, people are doing like Jerry Seinfeld uh, simulations of stand-up comedy and stuff like that. Right. Uh, it's pretty convincing, but it's like, you know, not actually a smart uh, AI or anything. Um, yeah. Okay, I'll say one that I, I feel like you'll get. Coil. <laughs> yeah, I was really into Coil. Like, like I was, I as a kid, I was massively into Throbbing Gristle. Like that was like where my world began, basically. And then I was into Psychic TV, and when Coil left Psychic TV, I was into the first few Coil records. Um, but then kind of went off them around Horse Rotovator, I guess, was my turn-off album. Um, Would you say there's any sort of uh, overlap between like the sort of occult coil, uh, throbbing gristle type stuff, like that chaos magic-y type stuff in uh, the Mark Fell world? Well, I think throbbing gristle were not you know, the kind of general character of Coil compared to Throbbing Gristle are quite distinct sort of things, you know. Um, so I think one thing that, that brought those together was like uh, someone like William Burroughs, you know, there was a kind of shared interest in William Burroughs. And he was a writer that I was really into when I was younger, you know, he, he was really kind of... Uh, a hero of that scene but i think looking back on burroughs like you know now we i'm kind of influenced a lot by or i'm kind of interested in like um ideas about how how we think or, or like how the relationship between the world and ourselves you know and 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 uh models that um look at how we really you know how we relate to the world how how thoughts are embedded in the world for example or um like there's a there's a paper about i think it's called extended cognition by clark and chalmers and they argue that it makes sense to talk of thoughts being embedded in the world and and just recently i realized actually there's this kind of a lot there's some kind of crossover there with burroughs in that burroughs talked about the third mind you know and cutting up cutting up the the kind of texts as a kind of way of interfering with logic the logic systems uh that are kind of implicit in those texts and revealing that um and and how it felt when they were writing this book the third mind how it felt as if there was another kind of agent in the room sort of <clears throat> or in the equation so so yeah i think in terms of um the mark fell world and the coil world i mean it's it's arrogant even to talk about a crossover between the mark fell and the coil world because you know the, the like uh coil are coil um but you know i think there'd, there'd still be a shared crossover in terms of burrows and stuff and um 
they, you know, they made some really great records, I think. Uh, but it's just my interest took me took me somewhere else, sort of. Um, yeah. Also, around that period as well, we there was the Hafler Trio. I don't know if you're aware of Andrew McKenzie, and the, he had this project, the Hafler Trio. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a whole bunch, you know, that kind of bunch of artists around that period included Chris Watson and Carmichael von Hauswolf, Andrew McKenzie. But but um, that was a really if people haven't encountered the Hafler Trio, they should they should dig it out because because that work, I think, is like incredibly important and not really that well documented or, um, you know, it's not the kind of thing that gets that gets referenced as much as much as it should do, I think. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, the Hafler Trio, I think. Um, it's now just one guy, Andrew McKenzie. I think uh, for me, we're kind of doing work around that kind of late. It's kind of like the the early nineties period of Coil. I think the Hafler Trio stuff then was like kind of worth checking out. Nice. Dig um, it out. Yeah, and and I think they also provide a kind of bridge between the sort of pre-house and techno industrial world and the sort of post-house and techno um, world of things like Mill Plateau and Editions Mego and stuff. You know, there's there's a kind of bridge there between these two halves, I think, <clears throat> that is kind of um, that sort of work. Mm -hmm. uh, so Last one on this list, I guess, uh, you mentioned Andy Clark and uh, David Chalmers. Is there anybody else in that sort of uh, vicinity that uh, you want to name drop my way? <laughs> Some things I will name drop is Clark and Chalmers. I think I think their paper's really brilliant. There's also a filmmaker that I'm really uh, influenced by, Peter Gidal, who's, um, he, he uh, was, I think he defines his work as materialist film. So there's a structuralist materialist film movement was like the kind of um, a, a kind of emphasis on revealing the mechanics of uh, or the, the kind of reveal how the film was made in the film itself. So, you know, it's, it's makings. So it's not about representing stories or whatever. And he wrote, um, Gidal's written a whole bunch of stuff, but his writing's really amazing, I think. So um, that, for me, if anybody wants to understand what it is I do, they should just repeat some Peter Gidal, and it's like, oh, yeah, he, he, that's basically, <laughs> says it, um, you know, with, with incredible clarity, I think. So Peter Gidal, who else? Um, The, I actually read a paper by some kind of Zen master about Shaku Hachi playing a few months ago. And uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like, it's, it's some um, text about how to play it, how, how one should approach playing the Shaku Hachi. And this idea that if you try and make it sound beautiful i'm always talking about this like every meeting i have these days i bring up this bloody paper i can't even remember if i've said it in this meeting already but um 
but how to, if you try and if you attempt to make beautiful sounds using the shakuhachi if you try and turn it into just something of aesthetic appeal that this is like indicative of like really really bad character and that the best way to engage with it is just to kind of blow it and see what comes out and um like do you want me to try and find a name of it like it might only take sure, me a minute that'd be great the shakuhachi flutes have been coming up all the time for me for some reason um really? like, uh, like every other video so i've got this thing i have no idea like, so i'm gonna really mess up my japanese pronunciation hitori kotoba by hisamatsu fuyo his hisamatsu fuyo anyway it's like a really old text from uh this guy was like 1790 to 1845 um so if people google that but yeah that's that's something that you know even though it's like from a completely different era and different part of the world and tradition in terms of like how i relate to how i think about what i do that kind of makes a lot of sense awesome well i'll scope it out um the the very last question i'll ask you and then uh we can wrap this up uh is you know, you're, I guess, acclaimed for your uh, selection of knitwear. And I'm curious if you can uh, give me any sort of wisdom for uh, sweater and knit knitwear. I didn't know that was a thing, but like, I have got a particularly nice jumper on right now. But that is because <laughs> I've not had the heating on in this room and I was like totally freezing. But actually under this jumper, I have another jumper. <laughs> I, but, I had this question planned, and then I, when you the Zoom thing popped up, I was like, "And he's wearing an excellent sweater." So, yeah, yeah. But um, merino wool. I'm so into merino wool. Like, because uh, I go out hiking a lot. I go out, you know, into the peaks. We live near the Peak District, so it's, um, you know, it's it's a really great place to just get out and, you know disappear into the landscape sort of mm -hmm. so yeah good good outdoor wear is really important let me show you my recent acquisition i think it's oh shit i don't know where it is i bought a merino i bought merino balaclava but i can't find it <laughs> shit anyway whatever well now you're aware of your reputation for knitwear um Cool. Well, Mark, this has been awesome. Uh, thanks for being so generous with your time and answering all You're my welcome. questions. And uh, yeah, I... Sorry if I kind of zoned out once or twice. I don't know what happened. I was just like kind of, uh, yeah. No, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, good. Cool. Well, um, I hope you enjoy your dinner and I uh, hope yeah. you get some listening in. And uh, thanks again. Okay, thanks. And keep in touch. Will do. Right. Bye. Yeah.